0: On this episode of China Unscripted, Chinese communist propaganda is infecting global media, trying to change how you think about China. And that's a good thing. This episode is sponsored by Huawei. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhao. And I'm Matt Knaister. And joining us today is Sarah Cook, the research director for China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan at Freedom House. She's here to talk about Freedom House's latest report. Beijing's Global Media Influence 2022, Authoritarian Expansion and the Power of Democratic Resilience. Sarah, thanks for joining us today.
1: My pleasure.
0: So this this really was a very interesting report that uh, you guys came out with. Um, so in general, let's get to the heart of the matter, is Beijing expanding its global media influence?
1: Yes, absolutely. That was really one of the key findings from this research we did looking quite closely at what's happening in 30 countries across six regions around the world. And we absolutely found that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to increase its influence in the media information space in these countries. Um, specifically, in 18 out of the 30, we found very clear evidence of that happening since 2019. But even in some of the others, it happened you know, in the year or two before, not during our coverage period. But there's definitely this type of upward trajectory in terms of investment and aggressiveness on a part of Beijing.
0: So so what is this exactly looking like? Like, I love the Global Times. That's my favorite Chinese state-run media. But is it just giving money for like, you know, better commercials and promotion for Chinese state-run media or is it something else?
1: Uh, It's actually a whole suite of different tools and tactics. And some are more open and overt and others are more covert and sophisticated and coercive. So one big push is expansion of Chinese state media, but especially more recently, it's not so much just having the state media and traditional media reach local audiences directly, because honestly, they didn't have a whole lot of success trying to do that. So instead, they're piggybacking on local media and their audience reach. And so you see these content placements, content sharing agreements, op-eds by and other inserts by Chinese ambassadors uh, into local news outlets in print and broadcast in mainstream media in country after country. And as someone who's been following this kind of Beijing's global media impact for over 10 years, that was really striking. They do have done this for a long time in Chinese language media, but in mainstream media across a wide variety of languages, uh, this was pretty new, but really like country after country multiple mainstream media outlets running this content that's maybe not global times as much as say Xinhua or China Daily, China Radio International. Um, and so it's content that's produced by Chinese state news outlets that are directly under the control of the Communist Party's propaganda department and or written by the Chinese embassy. And they're just reaching millions and millions and millions of users. It's, it's really massive. We found Examples in 130 country, 130 outlets in these 30 countries, Um, but but beyond that, there's also activities being done on social media, disinformation campaigns, networks of fake accounts, ambassadors picking up the phone and trying to squash coverage. It's it's through it's through this like piggybacking on mainstream media.
2: I mean, when you talk about piggybacking on mainstream media, is it clear that this content is Chinese state media produced content or is it kind of like a gray area?
1: Uh, it's pretty gray in a lot of cases. Um, it really varies a lot. In some cases, it's clearly labeled. Often it's labeled as, say, an advertorial or a paid placement. But much, much rare, like less common is that it's clearly labeled as Chinese state owned media. So even if it's labeled, so users know, oh well, this somebody paid for this to come in, you know, or it says in small print also, like oh this was placed by China Daily, or this is a column that is for the Chinese ambassador, um, you know, if it's the ambassador, it's a little bit clear. People know it's a Chinese government, but a lot of it, you know, it's it's just it's not it's not very clear. And you also have, I guess, other kinds of I would say information laundering. So for example, Xinhua, I'll have an agreement with a local newswire, and then they'll run it. And so then, in let's say local readers don't know, is this the Ghanaian news agency or Xinhua? Because they're seeing in their local outlet because the local outlet picked it up from the local news agency. So you also have that. And then you do have examples where it's just like clearly deliberately not labeled. Um, And there were a few examples um, in Kenya where that happened and actually the local media council like censured the local public broadcaster because they ran Chinese state media content that was unlabeled. Um, And in the U S and Romania, it wasn't the Chinese government in the same way it was Huawei, but they paid like local scholars behind the table to write articles saying, Oh, we should give Huawei access to our local telecom system. And it only came out later that those people were actually paid to say that. So there's, there's there's a spectrum. There's a bunch of different
3: things going on. And I, I'm remembering, like, on one hand, there's the China Watch inserts that we used to see in, like, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. I haven't seen it lately, but I also don't read as much physical newspapers as I used to. But those are labeled and so, like fine print, like, you know, paid insert or paid advertisement. And then there's the op-eds, like you talked about, from the Chinese ambassador.
0: I mean, you see those in we the New saw, York Times, too.
3: Yeah, we saw one of those recently. I forget what that was. Um, and then... Yeah, like the Newswire service. I remember when I used to work for more traditional media, you would get Reuters Newswire service. And then if there was like a flood or disaster in China, you would get state-run media footage of that. But it would actually just be the rescue footage. It wouldn't actually show I mean, like how much people were no suffering. There's no
2: kind of footage but rescue footage. Right,
3: because they make it impossible – to get any other kind of footage. So
0: they control the narrative that yeah, way. Yeah, they block outside foreign reporters and only yeah. have, safer media.
2: But then I think Reuters started directly taking CCTV like packages, not just the footage. Yeah,
3: that's true. Yeah, they, yeah just yeah. The, the full on. So yeah, and then the other one you mentioned, Sarah, was the, um, was it like paying, like paying third parties to write with a specific perspective? Yeah. And that's maybe the hardest to detect.
1: Yeah. That didn't come up as often, but I think it was also that sometimes you would see um, even people who work for Chinese state outlets, and this is where China Radio International really stands out. They've got some really talented people who speak the local language, and then they'd get on as like local commentators. Israel and Italy were two places that this really stood out. So they would be on like primetime TV commenting about something related to China, or in Israel, there was, like, a news series where this fellow, who like, speaks fluent Hebrew, um, but he's Chinese. And he did, like, these, like, stories for a local Israeli TV station about manufacturing in China. Toy manufacturing, of course, doesn't say anything about labor issues, you know, political prisoners, you know, things like that. And so they're broadcasting this with Chinese Yitzig, you know, who speaks, speaks fluent, fluent Hebrew. And it doesn't really say clearly that he's actually from China Radio International.
3: Which so they hired him as like a stringer to, to, to do complete packages?
1: Yeah, to do complete packages. It's not clear if it was a stringer or if they might have, China Radio International may have even co-produced it. There was another example in Israel where China Radio International actually paid the public broadcaster to co-produce some videos with this fellow. And that only came out after some freedom of information requests and things like that. So I think the money trail is really difficult to track. The U.S. is actually really interesting because we have the Foreign Agents Registration Act and some of the Chinese state media outlets, like China Daily, had to register. We actually know a lot more about how much money they're spending and where it's going. And that was also, just in the last few years, the Department of Justice started enforcing that more. So it was actually in that context, after there were news reports that had really explicit numbers of how much money was going, say, to the New York Times or the Washington Post, that those outlets discontinued the China Watch supplement. So that's also one reason why, Matt, you probably didn't see it as recently in the newspapers.
0: That was a very good, good change. And I'm curious, you're saying that Huawei was also doing something similar?
1: Yes. So Huawei came up in a number of countries as, I would say, both doing the propaganda side, but actually the censorship side of some of this as well. Some of it was paying commentators behind the scenes. uh, These junkets for journalists from the U.S., but also for other countries, Huawei would sponsor them to come to, um, you know, their facilities in China and and talk through how great it was and, you know, questioning whether they're actually under the control of the CCP or not. But they were actually pretty aggressive also in um, in kind of more censorship and intimidation. In France, there was an example of, say, a French researcher on a show kind of like this and saying that Huawei was actually controlled by the CCP and had close ties to the CCP and Huawei went and actually sued her for defamation and then sued the local for um, television producers. Um, and that court case went on. It was dropped very recently, but went on for like three years. So that really kind of creates, again, this type of chilling effect about what you can or can't say about a company that is very important in telecom infrastructure internationally. And there's very clear evidence that they have close ties in the CCP. Well, so, I mean, I think, think? that's, that's
0: yeah. it's just ridiculous just because someone talks about the very clear superiority of huawei phones and tech and really what they could do for the uh, america's 5g network just because they acknowledge this i mean that doesn't mean they're being paid behind the scenes by this independent chinese company
3: that has
2: absolutely no ties to the ccp exactly
3: yeah they they just censor things that are anti-ccp completely of their own accord because that's that's what you would do
1: And not because they're worried that Huawei is going to, like, pull their advertisements either, which we saw something, you know, threats along those lines happening.
0: Absolutely. Anyways, this episode is sponsored by Huawei. Exactly. Join the 5G network.
1: (laughs) And don't forget Alibaba, too. They're sponsoring all kinds of newsletters on the Hill and stuff like that, too. Really? Really.
3: Well, tell us about that.
1: Um, I mean, we didn't look as much at closely at Alibaba because it, it didn't come up as often. But they're also a company in the U.S. context, especially that, you know, is, you know, you see these sponsorships. If you ever read the Hill newsletter, it's a Congress and, you know, it's like an uh, electronic newsletter. And then you'll see kind of sponsored by Alibaba on some of the issues.
0: Well, I think the, one of the interesting things here is like you've mentioned like a whole bunch of different kinds of countries like Kenya, Romania, the United States. And I know Freedom House uh, lists countries by you know free, partly free, mostly free, not free. Uh, what what were you finding? Like what? Which kind of countries is China like targeting more heavily?
1: That's a good question. So in the this particular study, we looked at thirty countries, and they are all rated free or partly free by Freedom House. The so and we kind of gave each country two sets of scores um, in the way that Freedom House likes to create these rankings. So. One set related to Beijing's influence efforts and then one, the local response and resilience. In terms of the countries that had the highest targeting by the broadest array of tactics, not surprisingly, Taiwan was number one, and then the U.S. and then the U.K. But it's when you get into the next tier of countries that are still facing very high or or high levels of influence efforts from Beijing that you really see the global scope. So that's countries like Nigeria, the Philippines, Argentina, Spain Italy it's not just necessarily countries where there's either fairly hostile relations with the Chinese government or where um where there's a long track record of these kinds of influence efforts
0: so would you say like a lot of these are sort of like wedge countries that you know uh they can be you know shifted away from the U.S sphere of influence
1: Partly that or partly, and sometimes it depends. It's not clear that they were necessarily super strategic in selecting these countries. A lot of it might have to do with um, particular ambassadors who are especially aggressive or especially savvy in the media space. It has to do with, say, China Radio International and how savvy and influential it is in the local media space, including on social media as well. And it honestly has to do with local actors, too. Because it depends on whether like local journalists on media outlets are willingly, you know, accepting these content sharing agreements or in countries like uh, Chile, I think, Colombia, where they were rejecting it. So it, it kind of depends. Also, there's very much that element of like whether local actors are collaborating or not
0: and just a moment I'd like to point out that Alibaba is a great source for all of your needs uh, check out what of, kind of needs all of
2: your needs <laughs> okay <laughs>
0: what, what, what about my what about
3: my need for for oh, love no <laughs> uh, my, my deep-seated need it needs can provide
0: loved. you with devices for physical love
3: no no that's not what I'm talking about Chris uh, so <laughs> this, this, is, this is how it goes off the rails it's right. too
2: early for that um, I was actually going to ask if you guys looked at diaspora, Chinese diaspora media in these countries, Mm -hmm. or if it was mostly focused on local language media?
1: It was mostly focused on local language media, but we did look at Chinese diaspora media. And you really do see in a lot of places uh, very heavy influence from Beijing. A lot of the only media is controlled by the Chinese government with outlets and individuals going to China for various Chinese world media forums and things like that. And WeChat, the app that Tencent owns and is heavily censored in China, playing a very strong role outside of China as well. Um, and, and, and one of the things that was interesting with WeChat that we found, and this is a little technical, but basically if you want to like create an account that's not a personal account outside China, but is an account that let's say you're a news outlet and you want to broadcast to local members of the, or you know, of the local Chinese community, the way it's set up, there isn't really that fun functionality for international accounts. You kind of have to set it up the way it would be set up in China and be subject to that full range of politicized censorship. So you have a situation where even diaspora outlets that might want to be more critical um, end up having to self-select because what content they're sharing because they don't they'd otherwise be censored by WeChat and just have the account shut down. I
2: guess I was also wondering whether there was any kind of correlation between diaspora media influence and local media influence in terms of, I guess I'm thinking, because you mentioned Italy, and there's like a large Chinese diaspora in Italy. And I'm thinking about how they can do things like have an infrastructure set up to influence the local Chinese diaspora and whether there's ways to kind of use that system to influence local Media or you know officials that kind of thing.
3: You're talking about like the the neighborhood associations and like the the tongs and th- like that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Um. Not necessarily. It seems like in the most places the Chinese language media sector was still pretty isolated from the mainstream media sector. If anything, you had in a number of countries mainstream outlets that were translating into Chinese, and so. Italy wasn't one of these cases, but countries like the US, like Australia, like the UK, that have, or Malaysia that have relatively robust Chinese um, communities, were actually some of the ones that had independent Chinese language media. Um, because you had mainstream media that were also translating into Chinese PBC Chinese, but you also had some local outlets created by activists or dissidents or just those who are critical of the CCP. So it was actually Hong Kongers that are coming over there was just actually a a more diverse Chinese language ecosystem in those countries than in countries that had a smaller diaspora um, and where it was a little bit easier for the, or medium size for the CCP to influence it. Um, I think you do see in some countries, maybe Italy, maybe South Africa, maybe where, where there's influence in the broader Chinese community and then or attempts to influence. And then if you have individuals who get more, Engage in the local political system, like MPs and things like that. um, Then that's where the influence can manifest. But it gets really tricky because then you also have concerns over racism and and whether that's legitimate. And it it gets and so you kind of saw both sides of the coin with that. But for the most part, I would say, even in terms of their influence efforts, they they definitely want to get a strong foothold in the Chinese language community. The dynamics in the broader mainstream language is are usually pretty different. There might even be different parts of the Chinese media and propaganda apparatus that are that are operating in the different languages.
0: I'm curious, did you look at, um, like we've covered how China has been paying influencers on on YouTube to like come to Xinjiang and be like, hey, look, no genocide. Uh, was that a part of the the focus of this?
1: Yes, yeah, so we did that. That's the, I mean, I mean, we've been talking mostly about traditional media, but yes, absolutely, they're, very active and heavily invested on social media. Um, it comes out in overt elements of Chinese state media accounts in the local language. We looked in 30 countries and in every country, there was at least one account or content being shared from the Chinese ambassador or Chinese um, state outlet in the local language. And these aren't just languages like Spanish or Arabic that are spoken widely. It's Romanian, it's Kiswahili, it's Sinhala. Um, and this is also something that's really evolved in been a bit more of an investment on the part of the chinese party state in the last few years so you've got that overt messaging but you definitely have this covert element in some places it's kind of paying influencers behind the scenes lots of use of fake accounts so in about half the countries we actually found that they were using fake accounts to amplify the post by the chinese diplomat chinese diplomat posts something we want to make it look popular let's add some artificial likes and shares
0: Matt, take notes. We need to do that.
1: <laughs> and that came up from some like studies people did to about half the countries. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think there's been
2: some reporting on that happening on Twitter. Like, what platforms are we seeing this on?
1: This was especially this investigation was on Twitter. When we looked on Facebook, um, you know, you can just you can kind of tell <laughs> when there's a bunch of comments that are all precisely and exactly worded um, that that there's something kind of fishy going on. Um, So, that we didn't have as much for, we didn't have the resources to do forensic analysis. We were relying on studies other people have done. But Facebook has emerged in terms of, I would say, a combination of these different tactics where um, using fake accounts also to spread specific or amplify specific falsehoods. So, related to this conspiracy theory that um, COVID 19 originated in, in the United States or for Detrick or of course, denials about human rights abuses and Xinjiang is so beautiful and there's no well, there's no camps anywhere. Um, so things like that, that that was there were a number of disinformation campaigns um, that were detected that were using fake accounts to share and amplify that.
2: But
0: they were paying people like actual people to spread or party. It could be
1: bots, right? That was much actually harder to to, to unveil. Um, in some cases, it was clear actually by some of the filings in, in FARA, in the FARA, in the, this legislation in the U.S., or because people actually exposed. There were a couple of guys in the U.S. I think you maybe I don't know if you guys have interviewed them, but they had been like vloggers in China, left China because it got too repressive for them, came to the U.S. and actually become quite critical of it. They were approached by this like mysterious company in Hong Kong, like to do, I think it was like promotion related to agriculture or something. And then they kind of were fish, thought it was fishy, but were like, let's play along. And so they write back like, yeah, we'd be interested in this. And then the, the the outlet writes back, oh, well, you know, that client, we found somebody else, but we have this other client. I can't remember off time it was Hong Kong or Xinjiang, but it was one of the two. Um, and so then they actually exposed this whole trail of communication and a campaign by some local company in China to try to recruit influencers in the United States and in Canada to to spread this type of content.
0: Yeah, that was definitely yeah. uh wow, 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 eighty six Serpent Zeta. Yeah. Uh, quick side note. Have you guys ever tried Xinjiang ketchup? <laughs> it is the freshest, most delicious condiment I've ever had.
1: You need a bottle to hold up for the product placement, Chris. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: we, we didn't think this bit through.
0: No, no. <laughs> <You know?
1: laughs>
0: uh. Well, so what is the what is the end end goal of this? Because it sounds like there's a couple things going on. Like you mentioned, there is like direct censorship of critical voices. There's also amplification of uh, you know specific narratives. Uh, like, is it working? What What are their goals with this?
1: Um, I think, I think the party's goal is one. I mean, they say to tell the story well, but I think it's a lot of it. Increasingly, is to muddy the waters too. there's a lot of narratives that relate to not just oh you know some of it's really cultural and it's really lovely and you know Chinese culture is amazing and, and I think it's great if you know you have people more people talking about it and being exposed to it but then you do get these more problematic narratives related to um you know trying to um discredit well-documented content related to human rights abuses um, but also a lot of, like, anti-US, anti-Western narratives. Um, and then, honestly, it is really the content suppression. So we actually found examples of attempts to censor or punish outlets that were critical of the CCP in 24 of the 30 countries. And in about half the countries, the ambassador picked up the phone themselves. In 17 countries, they actually it was local media owners or local officials who tried to suppress the content. And then you've got like cyberbullying and cyber attacks and things like that that was happening in fewer countries. So
2: how does the, can you explain about the local media and how they would try to suppress content?
1: Yeah. So usually it's local media owners who have some kind of business interest in China or local Chinese investment. So this has been the case in Taiwan for a very long time. You have local Taiwanese businessmen, they'll buy out news outlets, and then basically there's surveys of Taiwanese journalists, where large proportions of them will talk about being told that you can't cover this or be careful how you write about that or don't do this, as well as illegally getting money to publish content from Chinese state sources, which is illegal, actually, in Taiwan. So there's the Taiwan case where it's been, I would say that's a testing ground. Um, But then you've got, you know, again, anecdotes from a variety of other countries. You know, Nigerian journalists will say that the editor will soften, you know, gets, wined and dined regularly by the Chinese embassy, and then will soften a story that's critical of the Chinese government. Mozambique, where you had a a news outlet that went and reported about a Chinese mine and then a TV station, and then we're told by local officials not to rebroadcast it later in the day. Um, In Panama, where a journalist around, um, I think it was a visit of Xi Jinping or maybe some other kind of big upgrade in relations, was told you better not write too critically, we don't want to lose advertising. So it, it's where there's this economic leverage and then in some cases there's, um, you know, there's there's preemptive censorship by local officials. Um, but one case, which is probably my, my favorite one, but it's a little bit lighter, is there was a list of worst dressed leaders that GQ magazine published in the UK and Xi Jinping was on that list and it was in the print edition but once it got online, upper management intervened and asked them to take it off. It was she, and it was, I think, the king of Thailand that they were worried about, um, uh, maybe just Majesté lawsuits or things like that. So on the online version, Xi Jinping is not on the list of worst-dressed leaders.
3: I mean, what is uh, his fashion faux pas? Is just wearing his pants too high?
1: Probably. It's kind of like dry, too. I didn't look at the examples at the
2: details. I mean, time. we talked about... Communist cadre style. It's not it's super stylish. It's not GQ, right? No. It's well, not. that's <laughs>
1: true too, because she's kind of revived the like Maoist jacket. When you like look at, I think his speech for the like hundredth anniversary of the CCP. I think he actually was wearing like the Mao era jacket.
0: Now I'm, cu- I'm curious because this is something like we've suspected for a while, and we've also talked with Laowai86 and Serpent Zeta about, but that uh, like Chinese bot accounts are like mass flagging critical videos on YouTube. Like, we've had things like suddenly age-restricted uh, weeks after it was published. Like, uh, recently we had one about the UN report on Xinjiang mm-hmm. and how China pressured him to cover it up. Mm-hmm. That suddenly was age-restricted.
2: And we don't know why, because they don't say, but we think it's because there was footage of uh, that drone footage that was leaked of the Uyghur prisoners who are blindfolded and being put onto trains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they tell us that there's it's age-restricted for violating community guidelines, and then it appears that there's some footage that they think might be violent or something like that. Like, we had this happen a lot with Hong Kong uh, footage, things like that. But, you know, when we appeal it, then sometimes they're like, they don't say anything. And then this time they were like, oh, sorry, that was a mistake. It was a mistake. Uh, You know, it's it's very bizarre, though, where it just happens – you know, a long time after the video is out. So it doesn't seem like it's YouTube itself doing Mm -hmm. their check and being like, oh, there's something you can't show in this video.
1: Mm -hmm. So that's
2: why we think it's mass flagging.
1: My suggestion would be to actually document it, like, like keep track of these and, you know, actually publish something, right? An op-ed or something like that about like a blog post or do a whole episode maybe. Um, because, and if there's other channels, so I think honestly, like one thing you do see, and I know if this is what happened in the YouTube case, but I, I think, China, I, I think, you know, mainstream tech companies are playing catch up on this and they're very reactive and they're trying to figure it out. But if you get their attention, then, then they may be more likely to, to respond. Um, I mean, honestly, YouTube itself, if you look at like the Google, like they quarterly takedowns. Um, they talk about how they go country by country and actually China is the one even more than Russia that has the most fake channels that are being taken down because of, um, some of it's just like spamming, but they say some of it's actually efforts to promote, um, even things related to like domestic US politics or things like that. So social tensions and things like that. So there's clearly investment, but I think it's just, you know, there's, there's a lot of gray area there. But if you can, you know, document and show a pattern, it can help it can help get a bit more attention and, and maybe resolve it.
0: That's a good idea. I wonder if any major media would have an op ed from us. We
3: could do a video blog or a V blog.
1: I think mm-hmm. it's a story that, like, a lot would be interested Even if you just document it and you write it as a memo and send it to some journalists, they might report itself or investigate it. You get a few other YouTubers who are critical of China and say that they've been facing this. I think there's, I mean, I think to the credit of expertise and forensic analysis being done to try to report on this, um, ProPublica's done pieces, the New York Times done pieces. So, um, I mean, I think if there's a real pattern, then um, there's, there's an audience for this, to be honest.
0: Mm-hmm. Not many guests have uh, given us great ideas for episodes or V-logs. V- yes.
3: V-blog, v I v believe, blog. is the is the popular hit right. term.
2: I mean, but I see what you're saying, Sarah, about the that these tech companies are very reactive. Uh, because I think when a bunch of stuff started coming out about Twitter and China and Russia, they started doing things like suddenly labeling state-run media accounts on Twitter and just being – and. Giving you a little pop up that tells you if you try to click on a China Daily link or something, it'll tell you that this is a state run, the state affiliated media. Um, and I remember there being a bunch of um, like an outcry from a bunch of Chinese um, reporters who were actually working for Xinhua or China Daily or People's Daily and kind of trying to keep that on the down low. And their Twitter profiles, So it was kind of like what you were talking about with that guy in Israel with China Radio International, where they were essentially on their profiles trying to hide the fact that they were working for state run media and they would just be like, oh, their profiles would look like they're just, you know, random China experts or, you know, just a person who likes to be on Twitter and is Chinese. And then they started getting these like state affiliated media flags on their profiles Mm. So if you looked at it, it would just say China state affiliated media and people got really
1: mad. It actually has worked really well. I mean, I think in terms of that affiliation, there was one study that found that actually engagement with tweets from Chinese affiliated accounts went down by like a third um, after this labeling started. I do think that's why you're also seeing more kind of covert and sneaky ways of trying to get content on social media. I mean, the fellow in Israel, to his credit, his his accounts, his own accounts are labeled. It was more when he was like making primetime television appearances in Israel that actually I think it was an ethical gap on the part of the local Israeli media that didn't make clear in the labeling like who he was. And they were actually pretty heavily criticized by some observers in Israel. But I think you, you definitely do see, I mean, I don't know the exact time correlation between, you know, this very clear effort at transparency and, you know, an effort on the other hand on the part of, you know, Propaganda authorities and whoever runs the disinformation campaigns in China, um, you know, deploying more of those type of uh, covert, um, you know, covert efforts there. There are still a lot of accounts that aren't labeled um, in some cases. It's they're, they're not officially labeled by Twitter, but they do explain who they are. So that's like a gap. But then there was one account, for example, I think it was in Kenya um, that had a decent following, several tens of thousands. And post these videos of, local, of Africans talking about how great China is for the region. And it's pretty clear that it's like somehow linked to CRI, but it's definitely not labeled as such. So you do see like that attempt to, as you said, to kind of to, to obfuscate those ties.
0: Well, so give us like for the average American, give us a sense of like why they should care, how this affects them, what the risk is.
1: I think it's different from country to country. Um, I think for average Americans, um, you know, just knowing what Chinese state media are and that when you see that China Watch, it's not in the New York Times anymore, but now it's in Time Magazine or USA Today, just kind of knowing that, you know, that this is content, having some media literacy of like what these Chinese state outlets are. I mean, Americans are for the most part pretty skeptical of it. Um, I think the trickier thing is, Again, like when you have Chinese state linked accounts trying to address like domestic political issues and polarization in the U.S. Um, But honestly, I do think it is maybe more on apps if you're talking about in the U.S. context um, in terms of WeChat for those who who speak Chinese. Um, And TikTok's a little trickier because ByteDance has been a bit more responsive But like, there's constantly just more information coming out that lends to concerns over a lack of transparency and what data is accessed and what potentially could content be manipulated. So I think just trying to push for more transparency from the company. And I think if we're going a legislative route, legislation that would require some level of regular third party audits, because when we really found in like so many countries in terms of the response. Is that in this space transparency really worked? Exposés just really work to raise awareness and blunt the impact um, because people need to be careful.
2: Yeah, I mean, you said in the report that these efforts are becoming more sophisticated and aggressive and harder to detect. Detect is that because of some of the pushback? Like how how are they kind of evolving this?
1: Yeah, I mean, basically, if you look at pu- public opinion. Um, towards China and Xi Jinping when they first did the push to really expand state media and influence narratives globally, that was like in you know, 2009 to 2015. Public opinion about China improved quite a bit. That's partly correlation to that and partly because of other factors. But more recently, they, they're really having a much harder time. And in a lot of cases, it's because the CCP's own actions undermine its narrative. So that can be domestic issues like Mass detention of Uyghurs or completely gutting autonomy and political rights in Hong Kong. But it's also internationally. I mean, they can talk all they want about win win and we don't interfere in internal affairs. But then when, you know, fishermen in the Philippines are being affected by takeovers of the South China Sea, that's the national television there, right? So people are going to have a much more negative view when, you know, uh, local journalists and commentators are exposing on Twitter or writing articles about the fact that they got a call from the Chinese embassy to tell them to take down content um, or to, they're like, what? In a lot of places, they're like, what? No, you can't tell me what to do. And they expose it. And then there's this real indignation. In France, the government even called in the local Chinese ambassador to officially rebuke him for doing that for against a, a French commentator. So I think it's like, like really their actions are undermining their own narratives. And so that's why then... You know, so many people are just skeptical of anything they know that's coming from the Chinese government or Chinese state media, some cases because they're just skeptical of state media anyway. There's There's a local history of authoritarianism or communism. But if it's from China, even more so. So then they have to get much trickier in terms of either forcing people's hands and using stronger economic leverage to get people to suppress content um, or hiding the actual state linked origins of content that's reaching local audiences.
0: So what how do you think democracies should be responding to this what uh, what should they do what should they not do
1: what's what's been really interesting in this and I think reassuring was actually to see what democracies are actually doing not just what they should do but um, in in country after country we found actually active pushback so in all 30 countries um, not just the US or UK or Australia but Kenya the Philippines even Tunisia there was like a journalist training on how to do research on Chinese investments and track that and monitor that. So we see it especially in the media and civil society space. Um, And I think there are real, like, actual ethical conversations about what are the ethical guidelines. Should you take any money from Chinese state media? If you do need to, how should you be labeling it? How should you defend your own editorial independence and reject some of the content? There actually are conversations and even some guidelines coming out in some countries like the Philippines along those lines. Um, so that's one area. Um, I think from the government perspective, governments are often lagging behind. And in a lot of the countries we looked at, as I mentioned before, about half the country, it was lo- half the countries, it was local government officials or media elites who were suppressing coverage. So that's much more challenging. Anything that can enhance transparency can go a long way. And anything I would say that's you know, not collaborating, right? Not or if you are kind of spurring or or um, uh, allowing some kind of entry into the media market, making sure that it's on you know grounds that you know enable um, some information for news consumers about what this content is. Make sure there's no discrimination, and make and you know and just kind of the regular editorial. Um, you know just guidelines in terms of of not sharing propaganda or or outright falsehoods to be honest
2: when you say when you're talking about the local officials or local media that have suppressed did these stories then come out in like how did you find out about it was it was it then publicized later
1: so in some cases we found out about it because it was publicized um either locally or by others so one example was in kuwait where a local outlet ran an interview with the Taiwanese Minister of Foreign Affairs. And then when they, they got a complaint from the Chinese embassy and replaced it on their website with a statement from the Chinese embassy, um, and it was actually Taiwanese media who reported about it, right? Because they were very upset about that. Um, so that's one way. But in some cases, it was actually through interviews. I mean, what was great about, uh, incredible about this project is that it wasn't my team and I doing a lot of the research. We have local analysts in each one of the countries, people who can speak the local language, who have contents in the local newsrooms, and they talk to editors and they talk to people on the ground, most of whom wanted to be anonymous. And we're saying that these are the kinds of things that happen. So that's kind of in some cases how we know. But in a lot of cases, it is that, you know, journalists are just kind of indignant that there was this type of pressure and they publicize it. Um, Or maybe there's some other kind of Uh, like I said, anonymous survey that was done, for example, in Taiwan by an academic that unveiled a lot of this as well.
3: What's the most insidious and effective type of Chinese propaganda that's getting through in these countries?
1: I think it really is working through the local elites and then getting them also to repeat these talking points. So it's just so much more powerful. Like people expect propaganda from the Chinese ambassador, right? Um, but if you have a local prime minister or the local minister of foreign affairs or a local member of parliament who's saying, you know, you know, I went to and sometimes they went to Xinjiang, sometimes they did. And I don't think this is really happening. Or, you know, we really, you know, China really an important player. And we really want to have Xi Jinping is just an amazing leader. And we really just want to have, you know, close ties. We really need this this money, which in some cases is true. But it's kind of still playing into a narrative that Um, detracts from a more balanced assessment of what might be safeguards you would want to put in place. One example was in Indonesia, for example, where if a significant effort to shape conversation there about what's happening in Xinjiang, because Indonesia is, of course, a Muslim-majority country, and so there was targeting of local Muslim associations, Muslim scholars bringing them to Xinjiang, others who are actually giving them scholarships, and they're based in Beijing, where as a Muslim from Indonesia, you have a much wider array of religious freedom, to be honest, than if you're a Uyghur in Beijing, let alone if you're a Uyghur in Xinjiang. Um, and then they would write blogs and comments in local media back in Indonesia, and that had a really profound effect on the way in which people were perceiving the situation. So I think it's that like that ability to co-op local voices who have their own audience and their own traction that that is through other mechanisms of political influence and co-optation that ends up having, like, is really some of the most insidious and effective um, tactics.
3: What's the best way then to counteract that without taking away individuals' right to free speech?
1: So what's really interesting is that we, there is an emerging cadre of experts in different countries that are gaining expertise on how CCP influence works um, in those countries. And that was really effective, even like there could be an outsized effect of just a couple of investigative journalism pieces, one person running a bunch of commentaries. So there's actually an Indonesian fellow. He ended up writing a report for us, but he's one of a number of think tanks and commentators. He's an academic, also writing in Indonesian media about how the Chinese government is targeting Muslim organizations and trying to get them to write this stuff about Xinjiang. And oh, by the the way, there's also this fellow Adrian Zenz and he's done this really well-documented research about camps in the region, right? So those local, it works both ways. So having local voices and people who are not afraid to speak up, but are actually increasingly targeting some of their research, their academic research, their investigative reporting to exposing how this works um, has a real multiplier effect. And you could see, I mean, again, some of the stuff we know about what happened in Israel was actually because Of these kinds of efforts and uh, really did change the political conversation. Uh, There's now greater investment screening. There is, I think, a little bit less of a, we'll just take whatever China Radio International sends our way by local media. So it does definitely blunt blunt the impact uh, once people are aware of how this is working.
0: And what should people be looking out for as they scour the media for information? Uh, Like any sort of Warning signs they should be aware of to see, like, oh, maybe this is, uh, you know, somehow being influenced by the Chinese Communist Party.
1: Um, I mean, I think one telltale sign is like the CCP speak. Right. Because like, you know, whether it's uh, the full title of some official from the China c- political consultative conference and something else. Right. And that's the quote. Probably a Xinhua story, even if it's labeled under the name of a local journalist or a local news agency. Right. So I think, Chris, I might let you go and try to see what you can come up with in terms of pretend CCP speak. But, you know, I think it's those types of that type of content is, you know, and wording can be a real, real red flag, too.
2: Anytime somebody mentions win-win cooperation or um, China has lifted x number of people out of poverty uh <laughs> hey
0: bloomberg has said stuff like that uh, yeah sanders bernie sanders
2: yeah i mean like well you they got that information from somewhere yeah. right? Yeah. yeah yeah
0: and and that i think is a really clear sign of like how dangerous and insidious this is like when you have just verbatim across the board u.s politicians media influencers saying oh well china lifted people out of millions out of poverty it's like come on it's a lie But it's been accepted.
2: Yeah. I mean that by itself. But then when you try to – if you see um, like in a story or an op-ed or something, that being related to human rights I think is like then the next Uh, step where it shows that like this is the CCP talking point where lifting people out of poverty is not just a good thing that they did but is a a example of – like their human rights. Well, it's because yes.
3: it's because the Communist Party has changed the definition of human rights, or rather expanded it to include lifting people out of poverty, so that they could be the the country that provides the best human rights. Michelle
2: Bachelet said had a quote that was about that when she was in went to China and Xinjiang. And what did she say? Uh, I don't remember the exact wording, but it was talking about you know China lifting people out of poverty as an example of like their. They're, they're the strides that they've made made in human rights protection.
1: And I think the, the thing is that when you actually look at economic and social rights in China, they're pretty bad. I mean, the way in which like the educational system is controlled, what kind of labor rights workers have housing rights, home demolitions, hukou system and, you know, it's actually, um, if you look at like international standards, they, they don't do so well on those. Um, but I think the other would be anything related say, to Xinjiang that uses terms like vocational centers. Right. So if you see a local official talking about this or a lot of times you'll just see local officials like, well, I don't know about this. I'm not sure. Well, they say this and he said, she said. Right. Or making it all very relative. Oh, this is just about the new Cold War. And this is just the U.S. keeping down China and not acknowledging that like most of the documentation that we have is actually based on the Chinese government's own sources and Construction bids for facilities that have barbed wire um, to keep people out, <laughs> uh, to keep people in, um, and are but are actually just like you know some kind of vocational training center. So I, I think it's those types of that very relativistic speak too that can also kind of be a bit of a red flag.
2: Yeah, it was very interesting to see the the CCP kind of roll out a few years ago, like roll out this entire campaign related to Xinjiang. Um, because I think when the when the first reporting about the camp started to come out, they they weren't really talking about it much, and then suddenly they rolled out this positive propaganda campaign where they started running these long, uh, you know, documentaries about how great life is in these camps and how these people are and. Uh, it, doing great, and then to see that kind of bleed out into what you were talking about earlier, Chris, about the influencers, like the YouTube influencers that were paid to go on a tour of Xinjiang, and uh, you can see in some of the videos that they're, like, in each other's videos in the backgrounds. I oh, think they were all on
0: like, a tour together. Yeah,
2: like, pointed this out, that you can see them <laughs> in each other. Or, like, they suddenly... I remember seeing one where the, the influencer suddenly... Um, was interviewed by a CCTV reporter in the middle of some random field in Xing, like a cotton field in Xinjiang, where she happened to bump into him on his tour of uh, China or his tour of Xinjiang. And it's just like watching. It's a, it's that a beautiful whole...
0: example of win win mutual cooperation. <laughs> it, it has very much the uh, hello, fellow kids kind of energy. Yeah. Like just very forced.
1: I mean, on the. Um... On Xinjiang and the influences, a very common theme is let me just go walking down the streets of Urumqi and oh, there are so many Uyghurs here. What are you talking about that there are people in camps? Where are all the Uyghurs in the camps if all the Uyghurs are here, right?
3: Well, they're only putting about one in every 10 people in concentration camps, right? So yeah, there's still plenty look, of Uyghurs left. Nine on the out of
0: 10 Uyghurs are perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just a matter of outlook, Matt. Exactly.
3: Yeah, so what do you think about that, Sarah?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Kind of curious, where do you think the the Chinese Communist Party is going to go next with their media influence campaign? Now that you've published this report and have exposed a lot of their current, you know, things that they're doing.
1: Um, I think they're going to double down on it. And I think especially on this element of being more sophisticated and covert and coercive um, because they're – reputation has actually gone down despite this uh, investment, but I don't think they're going to stop. But it really varies from country to country. I mean, I think really what was so Im- impressive in, in some ways, but also in kind of a scary way too, is the localization, is the local languages. Um, in some cases, it's also localizing certain mottos and content. And some of that's just kind of fake PR, but some of it's really trying to engage local o- audiences in a more meaningful way. Uh, to shape the way in which people are thinking about China, but also about what's happening locally. Because I think that's the real risk. Tri- the Chinese government and companies are investing everywhere around the world. And what they're trying to shape isn't just what people think about what's happening in Hong Kong or Xinjiang, but the mine down the street, the investment project. you know. And, and these are things that, you know whether or not to give a Chinese company with close CCP ties control over the digital television market. So I think it's really in that space that that's where you need to have more safeguards because it's even more trying to gain control over that medium and not just the message. um, That is where they're laying the foundation for greater control in the future.
2: So you're saying they're going to start to try to buy up local TV stations and things like that?
1: They aren't buying up so much local TV stations. I think it's on the content infrastructure. So that's where, like, for example, social media apps, mobile phone devices, Basically, the things that like, you know, like this expose um, that the Lithuanian government did this audit of Xiaomi phones and found all these latent blacklists that censor all kinds of terms. First in Chinese, then it was updated from Singapore in late 2021 um, and uh, and included content in English as well. Um, you know, you don't have a blacklist like that if you're not going to maybe activate it at some point. But that was just one example of where like those kind, the only way you find that out is if you actually have some kind of audits done. And so it's like, that's the type of investigation that's needed, not just on what content is being shared where and, and in different places, but where the actual like channels of dissemination are controlled by a China-based company that has close CCP ties. Because that's where like the safeguards need to be put in now, um, or we're gonna look back and just find out that like a lot of information is being controlled by the CCP, and it's too late at that point.
2: So it makes me feel better to know that a lot of people on, like Gen Zers, are getting all of their news from TikTok.
0: Is it Gen Zers who are the newest ones?
1: Yes, as far as I know. Yeah, we're not the demographic so much
0: anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's too bad the world has changed.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I guess the yeah, I see what you're talking about the local things, and is it more that they're interested in local? Projects that relate to Chinese interests or just getting involved in local um, issues in general?
1: Um, For the most part, it's projects that relate to local Chinese interests. And that's where you also have entities like Huawei that have their own interests and are doing their own kind of campaigns and messing around the media space, right? Um, So far, it's really mostly in in Taiwan where there's been any kind of real significant effort at like political interference in terms of like electoral outcomes and things like that. Um, But there were some campaigns in the U.S. again around the edges in terms of disinformation um, on, you know, not real focus, more about mudding the waters than necessarily leaning towards one political candidate or the other. There was one short-lived campaign in the Philippines that was pro-Duterte. So there's definitely a dabbling in that. And I think it's I think it's what you see with the CCP and it's what you see domestically is once they gain control over a particular part of the node in the information flow, they're the gatekeepers. And if they're the gatekeepers, then, you know, they can kind of decide later what they want to do with that.
2: So it sounds like what you were saying earlier about civil society pushing back is like a key way to resist it, right?
1: Yeah, I think civil society and media, because that's who exposes it. And then you get broader public pressure on the politicians. So then there's like a counterweight to whatever kind of behind the scenes, you know, favor currying favor the CCP and Chinese diplomats are doing.
0: Well, so I think that's why it'd be good for anyone watching to check out the the report, the Freedom House report. We'll put a link below uh, so they can kind of learn more, tell friends and family. So thank you, Sarah, and all of Freedom House for uh, doing this research
1: Th- thanks for having me and and thanks for all your efforts uh to, to expose what the CCB is doing in, in china and, and around the world
0: absolutely this episode is brought by xinjiang ketchup <laughs> slather some on
3: slather some on your huawei phone
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the perfect combination uh
2: yeah, you I, missed him ten, tencent and,
3: yeah. and alibaba
1: Oh, no, he did. He did do a push for
2: Alibaba.
3: He did do a push for Alibaba. Yeah. You should, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Now, f- don't forget to follow you guys on WeChat because you guys, of course, have a super popular WeChat account because you've had no problems whatsoever opening an account and registering it with like a Chinese national or something.
0: Like That's that, right. right. Uh, it is the favorite account of Li Da Yuan from the Chinese People Political Consultative Contest. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, you yeah, need to go so close, to that Chris. media training again. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, almost.
1: <laughs> you haven't done so your junket,
2: Chris. Uh, yeah, that would be interesting.
0: It would be coming yeah. soon. All right, thanks again, Sarah. My pleasure. So you know, I think I have a solution to this.
2: Does it involve Xinjiang ketchup?
0: It does not actually. Okay. Um, I'm dropping that bit for now. Okay. Uh, I mean, you know, we 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 talked about the problem of like. Things being labeled like, oh, paid paid advertisement or, you know, maybe just like something that doesn't really warn the person oh my God. of who it is.
2: I know where this is going.
0: Go ahead, Shelly.
2: No. You say it,
0: Chris. Say what?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I would love to hear what you, uh, the words come out of your mouth.
2: No. <laughs> All right, just
0: label it. This was re- written by a filthy communist.
2: Uh, well, I thought you were gonna say something else. That's basically more or less the same thing. Yeah. yeah. What
0: were you thinking? I was saying.
2: Not gonna say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so close. Damn, I, I was, try. I was so going to cut that out and uh-huh, uh-huh, spread
0: it uh-huh. all over Twitter.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, that's why I'm not gonna try say it. try and make
0: it a meme. Uh
2: huh. That is why I'm not going to say it. Say who needs what? to walk? Who needs to watch out for? <laughs> the CCP when I just have to guard myself against you.
0: I think you would get a lot of respect and following from people if you would just say
2: Mm-mm.
0: something about the dirty reds, the filthy communists, commies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um being better dead than red. I don't know. One of those things. I'll catch you one of these days. Not today. Not today. How do you feel about the filthy reds, Matt? Um
3: I feel it's a Complex and nuanced issue. I hate you both so much. (laughs) (laughs) But thanks for inviting us on the podcast.
2: I I am, I am glad that you included Matt in this. You know,
0: he doesn't quite have the social media following as you. Also, it might be it would just be funnier hearing you say it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, you're you're inherently funnier, Shelley, because you're the humor ninja.
0: And actually, deep fakes are getting pretty good these days. Maybe I can just, maybe I don't need you to say it. Wow, technology. Dude, it's a great Huawei idea. Huawei technology. It's so great. I'm there just going to
2: have to make sure I never say those words in any script ever in the future. Oh, Shelly, you, you think not yeah. saying
3: it will be enough to well, stop the deep fakes?
2: Pretty soon it won't be, but yeah. it would make it easier.
3: Yeah. Hey, Shelly, what's your favorite color? Green. Okay. what's What's the opposite of green on the color wheel?
2: The one that's between <laughs> orange and blue.
0: A uh, washing machine does what?
2: Cleans clothes.
0: A wa- oh, I was thinking dishwasher in my mind, which does what?
2: <laughs> Cleans dishes.
0: All right. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. We'll,
2: we'll get her happen. one of these days. No.
3: And now we've spent like the last five minutes of our podcast talking about this, trying to get Shelly to say just a few words. The words that I know are in her heart. This oh, is a... you
2: don't know what words are in my heart right now, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: I think I can hear them loud and clear. <laughs> this is why it's so great that we have smart people like Sarah on, so she can say something important and we can just uh, goof around at the end.
2: <laughs> we could just ruin everything so this is the last people pe- thing people remember?
0: Yeah, this would be solved. She just said the words.
3: Yeah, I mean, really, I do think that this is your fault, Shelley,
0: mm-hmm. for not acquiescing. It's kind of like Jumanji. Once you say those words, it's done, and then you go back to being an innocent child.
2: I guess I don't really remember Jumanji.
0: I know what we're doing after this. Uh, Not the the remake with The Rock, I believe, by the way. The original with Robin Williams. Of course.
2: Uh, Yeah, I definitely don't remember that movie.
0: Thanks for watching China Unscripted. (laughs) Did, Did either of you have anything you wanted to say?
3: Oh, nothing important, no. Sarah... Said all the smart things.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we should just label, like, hey, this per- this was said by a filthy communist. That makes things clear. So I think that was also intelligent. Yes. All right. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell.
2: I'm Shelley Jung.
0: And I'm Matt Ganister. We'll see you next time as I try to harass Shelley.